Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. I'm very happy uh, to have our guest today, who is Paul Bridge, the CEO of the, ho- of the Social Housing Strategy at Civitas Investment Management. Civitas is an impact investment manager. They IPO'd the first London-listed real estate investment trust in social housing sector in 2016. And Paul is an industry-leading figure, having held high-profile roles for major registered providers and housing associations over the last 20 years, being responsible for thousands of employees and tens of thousands of homes. So welcome, Paul. Thanks very much for coming on. So, Paul, you've got a really kind of interesting background, uh, especially into the housing associations before coming and joining Civitas. Do you mind just giving us a bit of a, a bit of a story of your background, how sure. you got to become into the into that housing association world and then going on to running them? Yeah, it goes back a long way actually, Rod, as these things often do. So when I graduated, I started as a housing officer and a rent recovery officer yeah. actually at a local authority. Got very interested in, in social housing, that was back in the 90s. And then I started working in regeneration, where you'll remember that there was lots of investment from government at the time in the Decent Homes programme. So I started working for housing associations, taking over lots of large um, local authority estates. And then I became a chief exec of Homes for Haringey, which as you mentioned, had tens of thousands of homes, lots of customers. And lastly, I've been lucky enough to be involved in establishing with Andrew Dorber and Tom Pribble, the founders of Civitas, a new strategy to bring together institutional capital into a market that hasn't seen it before, but obviously, as you know, incredibly high demand and, you know, really something that we all need in society, a good home, a safe, um, secure home, and we've been able to bring, as you mentioned, a lot of capital in the last five years to, to enable that to happen. And, I mean, you t- touched on bringing capital in and building new homes. I don't think anyone in the housing market, of any sort of housing market, would dispute the fact that we need more mm. social homes uh, built. And it seems to, we seem to have hit sort of a wall in that. I can't remember mm. the total figures, but I think it was something like in 2017, we'd, we'd gone down to just 5,000 social homes being built. Mm. It, it came up a bit to 27,000, but we, we, our long-term average was always around 45,000, mm. and we're way below that. Mm. I mean. How much of that is down to the pandemic, do you think, and how much do you think is actually just down to the needs and wants and maybe uh, the way investment goes into the sector? I think if you look at the trends overall, um, I think the government would say that overall house building has has increased mm. um, to several. Well, it, well, it depends how you how you. If Sadiq <laughs> um, Khan is is double counting start uh, dates and things like that, it can be uh, a bit tricky. For I, I, I don't comment on political matters, <laughs> of course, as you'd expect. Um, I mean, I think in social housing, what what we know is clearly. The pandemic did have some effects on, yeah. although actually we were at a fantastic development the other day owned by one of our investors, CK, um, on Chelsea Waterfront, yeah. and it's got a significant amount of um, social housing there, and it's an absolutely amazing site. It will bring forward thousands of new homes in every sector. And, and as you know, developers did return to site earlier than most of us yeah. in terms of prioritising house building. I mean, part of the story is money, clearly, mm. and tr- traditionally, of course, 
back in the day, many decades ago, the government used to pay for all capital investment into social housing. So when I was first a development officer in a housing association, you would get 100% grants. Mm -hmm. Now, housing associations, particularly the large ones, are expected to provide their um, social obligations through cross-subsidy. Mm. Um, so they often do private for sale, shared ownership, to develop surpluses, which they can then use. Um, what we're trying to do is obviously partner with the best organisations in the country on social housing, but bring forward equity because traditionally, unusually in this country compared to Europe, the amount of institutional capital was, was you know, virtually zero. Absolutely, um, yeah. It, it's increased, it's still probably a very low percentage. We brought in a large amount, but of course, why was that? Well, of course, it goes back to the point that originally it was paid for the government, mm. and then, mm. then the housing associations um, were able to borrow from the major banks. Yeah. You know, they borrowed um, you know, many, many um, billions of pounds successfully. And they've tried to open that up recently as well, haven't Absolutely. they? Yeah. And, and, and they've done a very good job mm, at that. Mm. But the truth is most housing associations are simply managing properties, yeah. which is what they're, they're good they're at. They're not investment uh, vehicles no, or, or and the, the big house, yeah. Correct, Rod. And the big housing associations, of which you know, there are about 50 mm. the developing ones, what do you do with the rest? And what we do is we work with organisations that aren't able to borrow capital. Mm but are able to manage really, really effectively, especially managing properties where people have particular needs, so healthcare needs, I'm sure we'll come to this. Absolutely, so, I mean, yeah. you, you, you're touching on the management of properties now, yeah. so it's probably a good time to maybe kind of bring you back to the housing association days where you were managing, I think, I can't remember yeah. the exact numbers, but I know one of them was, I think, 25,000 homes correct, or plus. Correct. What was the biggest challenge in operating an organisation, mm. managing that many properties and that many tenancies? And what advice would you give to some of the landlords listening who are mm. trying to scale a portfolio of residential mm. housing in terms of difficulties that they might need to overcome? Interesting question. I mean, uh, in, in most of the portfolios, well, in all the portfolios I was managing, they were um, a very mixed age of buildings and been developed at different times, mm. had different issues. We had, this is something we don't have in Civitas and lots of new developers fortunately won't have, but we had a lot of system built tower blocks, 1500 tower blocks at one point in one of the strategies I was working in. Obviously, there were issues around fire safety and cladding, and there were issues around other building safety matters. So obviously, you had to have an extremely good approach to health and safety. I always used to say, it's not a very good joke, but these buildings would be easy to manage if people didn't live there. <laughs> and of course, you know, when you've got social housing of around 20,000 homes, it probably means that you're meeting the needs of about 150,000 people because mm. uh, social housing tends to be well occupied yeah. for obvious reasons because of demand constraints. So we adopted a strategy in Haringey are very focused on people, what their needs were. It's a very diverse community, 97 spoken languages. Um, and that shows because you, mm. I think it was the award you won, Investors in People Gold in we 2012, did. didn't you? So and I'll say it now, yeah, we yeah. won the Housing Organisation of the Year in 2012 yeah. as well. And, and it, I have to say it was an absolute joy, Rod. I mean, yeah. the, so can you imagine working somewhere where 97 languages are spoken yeah. in your office? And, and it was over 800 employees you were yeah, responsible yeah, right. for as yeah, well. Right. And, so they, and those yeah. employees had a lot of different skills, yeah, so they yeah. would obviously have 
people who were providing you know, accountancy services, but you also had 200 people doing repairs, yeah, yeah. doing our own repair service. I was trying to answer your question about advice. I mean, I guess, you know, I always say to anyone that wants to lead an organisation, the most important thing is you actually want to do it. Yeah. I know that sounds a bit yeah. odd, but do you really want to be responsible for those things? But it's all about empowerment. You have to have everybody focused on, you know, great customer service. I mean, we had four key values, learn, care, serve, enjoy. Yeah, yeah, so we yeah. wanted people to enjoy what they were doing, but also to you know, to really up standards for, for residents in their homes. Brilliant. And so what was it that made you make the jump, I want to say into the private sector sure, of Civitas, sure, sure. because it, I suppose it's more of yeah. a joint of uh, yeah. private and then yeah. public money coming in. What, what, what made you move then mm. to there? Was it just a, a new challenge or anything else? Well, I, I, I mean, I had been operational for a long time mm. and I'd done lots of generation schemes, but I'd had, you know, I was in my early 40s and I wanted to do something different in terms of, and I couldn't understand why equity wasn't playing a role in the sector. Mm. But obviously I didn't have contacts um, in the stock market or, or in institutions. I had contacts in banks, um, because obviously we borrowed money, but I didn't have those contacts. I was lucky enough to meet Andrew and Tom, as I mentioned earlier, and, and they had a vision. They'd already set up a private fund that they scaled quite successfully. It was over £100 million, called a Funding Affordable Homes, you know, with other partners. Yeah, yeah. But what they wanted to do was set up much bigger vehicle that could capture hundreds of investors yeah. and more direct more direct being a, being a REIT rather than a fund and returns really clear what attracted it to me was that I felt that was energetic and brave to go and do something that was so open and transparent because we were the first on mm. the stock market and I've always been very keen on governance and accountability yeah. so you know I guess a personal prejudice coming back from you know when I was uh, much younger was our private sector's organisations transparent now in, in when you run a REIT and it's listed on the stock exchange you can't be anything but fully transparent yeah. and you know we have a lot of excellent relationship with shareholders who um, hold us to account for what we do in, in a, sorry in addition to other stakeholders and partners so that really attracted me and how how difficult was it then because you mentioned you didn't have a huge amount of experience from the bringing in investment side, no. but you IPO'd this, uh, this REIT onto well, the London Stock Exchange, so you must have been to, to an element of throwing in the deep end there at kind of doing that. What, what was the biggest difficulty in terms of raising, raising investment and doing that IPO in, in that REIT where maybe obviously the guys had done a fund before, but yeah. this was obviously something fairly, fairly yeah. new in terms of the vehicle. Yeah. Well, those individuals had, Tom and Andrew had ex you know, extensive yeah. experience of launching funds from a banking perspective and from a real estate perspective. The reason that they wanted a senior figure from social housing was obviously, although they had already been working for social housing for young, some years themselves, they felt it was vital that um, they had a team of people who had skills and experiences from the sectors that we're trying to work in. Yeah. And if you look at Civitas, Civitas Investment Management today, we've got over 40 people, they're from healthcare, they're from legal, they're from financial, significant backgrounds from different sectors that we now invest in. And of course, I mentioned earlier, I'm, you know, my role is about the social housing side. I didn't feel thrown in the deep end. What I did feel was it was a really great opportunity mm. to, we did hundreds of presentations in a short period of time, as you know, it happens with an IPO. And it was really interesting to, um, you know, I, th I would say that 
almost everybody that I met was really interested in social housing and in wanting there to be a better society. Absolutely, but I mean, didn't who know, wouldn't didn't have yeah. the means to do yeah, it? Yeah. Because you know, uh, you know, without being critical, most people hadn't experienced social housing mm. in that way, and certainly not in the way that I've experienced yeah. it in terms of management. Yeah. And what we were telling, the story we were telling, was obviously that. You know, we had the links to enable people to invest in something mm. that they got a good return from, that was socially minded, but obviously they wouldn't be exposed day to day to the risks. So why would why would a particular investor perhaps not want to invest in social housing directly themselves? Well, because obviously, you know, you need to be able to deal with the people mm. and to enable people to, to thrive and flourish in their homes. And that's better a better place job, I think, with housing associations and care providers. And are are you finding, that's a a really interesting point and and one that really I suppose comes down to all real estate Mm. in terms of the management is a huge part, it it is a direct investment Mm. when you're you're investing into a REIT, you are the direct investments into those real assets. Mm. Are you seeing the residential property now, and I I know you discussed kind of the institutional money coming in and how the UK is Mm. into, I think I think at the moment alternative real estate is alternative real estate funds make up 48% the institutional money is 48% of those alternatives in the the US which is heavily made up of logistics and residential now in Europe it's it's a bit hard it's 10% and the UK is even further behind that so there seems to be this this theme of those those are obviously more mature kind of institutional real estate markets but Am I right in saying that more institutional money is focusing on residential now as a fixed income play, really? And I think the problem we have with SME landlords, probably like myself, is we'd like to fit into that fixed income bracket, but unless you've got a thousand plus units, Mm. you're really probably more on the erring on the side of private equity mm. um, whereas you seem to be raising equity mm. for that and mm. offering kind of fixed income returns mm. um, to your investors are you seeing more institutional money kind of thinking in those terms or have uh, absolutely more, yeah. certainly in the last six years yeah. since we launched the REIT there was always a lot of interest in what we call specially supported housing mm. which is where people have got a significant care need they're of working age and they need that care for life. So, you know, by definition, investment is long term because the home is required for the long term. What we've seen is many institutions entering. Obviously, we've been um, lucky enough and fortunate enough to build, first of all, a partnership with Schroders, mm-hmm. which is our new build fund, and subsequently a, par- a partnership with CK Asset Management based in Hong Kong. As you know, an enormous mm. family multi-decade, multi-generational fund that own all sorts of infrastructure, plays, you know, they own a Queen King. A lot of these family offices can mm. often be a great great investor yeah. f- to go through volatile times because they have such a long It's all about expectations, yeah. thinking yeah. And, and multi-generational mm. thinking. We've also seen, obviously, other listed REITs doing different parts of social housing mm-hmm. and an extraordinary amount of infrastructure Investors. I was going to say infrastructure seems to be the next kind of big thing. More interested in the healthcare Mm, because really in in the healthcare market, what we do is see as healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's not hospitals. Mm -hmm. It's not you know high end institutions. 
but it is providing a setting where people can be properly cared for. They, they are homes, they yeah, look yeah. like homes that you or I might live in, they're converted appropriately for the, for the needs of the people that are there. It, you know, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? it? I think a lot of this dates back to really, if you look, I mean, even going back 50 years, it was clear in British society and in government that the, the desire was to house people in their homes and in their communities, yeah, absolutely. rather than in big institutions and hospitals. Remarkably, some people are still housed in that way. And that trend has happened across Europe mm, as well. Mm. So the UN Charter on Human Rights says disabled people should have the same opportunities as you or I. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Plus the, the Care Act in 2014 in Britain set consolidated everything and said and this also is the, the way mental it health be. act as well yeah. absolutely stopped police then having to go to section people and they had to instead of going to police yeah. stations and hospitals yeah. unfortunately they still are a bit because yeah. there's nowhere else to yeah. to go for the short term care but yeah absolutely it's it seems to have really kind of taken a it's gone to the forefront of people's minds i think and it's got it's gained a lot of media attention it's got some good spokespeople behind it mm. as well in terms mm. of mental health you you mentioned supported living mm. there so in terms of social housing we know it encompasses a few different types of it living does. and it housing does. for example supported living being one of them how how do you decide on the weighting of those in your portfolio and and where do you see the biggest demand and supply imbalances over the next few years in terms of that? Well, I mean, the overall macro numbers are very, very high, as you know, in social housing. Mm. There's probably five million people waiting for social housing. That's a demand that would never be met, uh, you know, institutionally and across society. But obviously that's for general needs accommodation mm. and lots of people's needs will be met in other, other sectors eventually. In our area, in social housing, we see a big growth in demand for specialist housing because of demography. So first of all, as you'll know, 30, 40 years ago, if you have a baby and that baby has had a birth trauma, their chance of survival was quite slim. Mm. And certainly, if they did survive, then you know they may not get to adulthood. It's actually very good news now that you know, tens of thousands of babies do survive when they wouldn't have done before, and they grow up to be adults. And at the other end, their life expectancy has started to become as good as yours or mine. Yeah. So that the implication of that is that they need 50 years of housing mm. and a number of people that and care yeah. precisely. Yeah, yeah. And often when they're children they may be receiving some state support and some care and support but they're often living with their parents or mm -hmm. family so mencap estimate that 50 percent of people with a learning disability live with someone over the age of 65. so what you see is a number of people as their parents get older or their carers get older need to move to lifetime accommodation yeah. And it needs to be lifetime accommodation because not only for themselves but for their parents and yeah, families because yeah. they need to know when I, you know, to put it crudely, when I'm gone, yeah. where is my son or daughter going to be living Absolutely, and are they yeah, going to be yeah. properly cared for? Yeah. So that's a big area of demand. Obviously, we also do new build development through Sheridan's, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. through that partnership, and that's a in the just to be clear in the REIT we acquire existing buildings mm. and we sometimes acquire buildings on exit yep. that we don't take development risk. Mm -hmm. So in the REIT... So would you forward fund those? Or no, yeah, not yeah, in that yeah. strategy, but in the Schroeder strategy, okay. strategy we do. But what we do, what has happened in the REIT is that well over 90% of the properties are housing with care. So for working age adults, average amount of care going into the building is 43 hours a week, mm, very right, significant. Yeah, yeah. 
far less than they would have in the hospital yeah. because they're much happier yeah. in that environment. And we recently produced a book actually called A Place For Me with an independent journalist and photographer telling the story of 50 of our residents, mm -hmm. absolutely transformational world. Yeah. So people living in hospital for three, four, five years, coming out, first time they've been able to have a cup of tea with their friends. Well, it's big, big in the news at the moment, we're hearing kind of stories of people who have been sort yeah. of in, in hospital for yeah. years yeah. Uh, without contact to families and things well, like that. Well, unfortunately, it's, it's, yeah. um, even if people go in for short stays, yeah. they then stay on average for five years. Yeah, and that's not a criticism of that model. It's that once people are in an institution, they need further help yeah. and of course, proper you know identified housing of high quality and so that's why we're doing new build as well mm -hmm. uh, because obviously our acquisition of existing properties within the REIT is you know is a good strategy largely because people need to live in existing communities well, and, and also but we also need new supply as well, well and I guess yeah. new supply mm -hmm. is can be built to mm -hmm. the needs that we have now in today's society whereas Definitely. if we're looking at existing supply I guess the majority is kind of Victorian buildings well, around London yeah. and, and it's Sometimes it's very difficult to repurpose those to, I it don't know, is. wheelchair access, for example, or whatever yeah. else you need. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, we do have, I mean, we, if you looked across the reads and across our website, you'd see a range of buildings. Mm. So we have some um, very high acuity buildings, mostly in Wales, actually, mm, okay. who, which were um, bought on exit. Um, they've got, you know, Wales' biggest aquatic centre mm. for a number of people who've got particular very challenging conditions. We do have a number of Victorian homes and they can be converted very appropriately for small groupings of, yeah. of almost like a family. What you find I guess it's what, what the needs are of different of different people, isn't what it? What you yeah. find with learning disabilities is often people have lived together and moved in together for a long time. Amazingly, in our book and we discovered a couple who um, their parents had taken both their children to um, a learning disability clinic when they were yeah. six months old. Yeah. They're now getting married in one of our properties oh, wow. and they're in their early 30s yeah, yeah. and they've been together for um, years and yeah, they want yeah. to live together forever. Oh, so in those Victorian settings yeah. you can uh, create, but as you rightly say... It's a capital uh, cost isn't it? And um, It depends, yeah. 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 I mean, your investors, they want to... It's obviously yeah. built into yeah. the yield threshold of mm -hmm. five and a half to six and a half and that you know, capex and conversion costs are included in that, so that's a really vital part. And that's that's kind of an interesting point moving on to the investment side, because obviously you're marrying up the 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 impact that, yeah. that you're creating, which yeah. will go on to purely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but also the investment, because people want to see mm. a return on their investment. Mm. Hello everyone, I'm sorry to interrupt, I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between 6 and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. 
they will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed use developments and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in, other, in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do. Provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, the terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. You mentioned the yield there. Are you looking at kind of, and we talked about the long-term income plays and things like that that people might be looking for. Is there any capital uplift that you that would be baked into that over mm. the long term as well? Mm. And, and, and how are you finding investors mm. are looking at some of these investments in terms of what maybe, how does it compare to other potential op- opportunities that they might have? I mean, you'll obviously, as you said before we started, Rod, you'll respect the fact that, you know, in terms of predictions, yeah. you have to be careful because yeah. we're a public fund. But I mean, in terms of capital uplift, it would be rational to suggest that, I mean, A, we're investing in traditional streets and communities yeah. where occupation is very high amongst all the buildings. So obviously there's always an alternative use. B, as we talked about before. Well, the demand is, uh, is five million, like you said, on the way to. It's, yeah. it's interesting. It, it is possible to buy the wrong building yeah. in the wrong place because people do need access to services. Yeah, yeah. They do need access to the things that you and I need. Mm-hmm. And in particular, to enable them to have proper access to the community. So if you've got very high-end autism, it might be that you do need quite a remote location. If you've got um, a mental health um, issue where actually you need a lot of socialisation, you need to be in a town centre. It's very important you get those things right. So Mm -hmm. yeah, in terms of capital uplift, so so in the long term, what, what what you can see is so obviously there's you know we would argue there's a portfolio impact here mm-hmm. and JLL mm-hmm. or independent value we certainly say that there is we don't you know we don't size the fund on its portfolio mm-hmm. cost however it it's rational given course, that yeah. we've done you know, well over a hundred transactions yeah. to assemble the portfolio and if you look at some of the big infrastructure acquisitions of housing of this type mm. with care in it the yields are are certainly keener, you know, the ones we've we've been acquiring at. Well, I guess looking at the yield, so um, for example, if we're looking at a residential portfolio, we might, which isn't for social housing, which is just rented on on ASTs, there'll be a significant amount of operational costs. And the concern at the moment uh, with what's going on sort of in in the general economy is that some of those lower value properties with 
maybe lower rents, where you've got an increase in inflation, where you've got energy prices going up, that represents a disproportional amount. So although you might have a 10% yielding property, I don't know, in Northumberland, for example, your energy cost a three-bed house is going to be similar to what it is in Mayfair as a three-bed house. So how... How are you, th- or are you seeing investors mm. looking at those types of value proposition in terms of the actual nominal value of some of those things? Mm. And are they concerned that the lower end of society in terms of value, i.e. those lower income earners, lower income renters and lower income properties, mm. are they more at risk in terms of that portfolio, do you think? And are investors feeling that? Well, I- I'm not sure. What I do know is in respect of our particular portfolio around let's say you've got exempt rents which are a particular type yep. of rents as you know which is basically a social rent but has extra uh, provision in it to enable the conversion to happen the care to happen etc so I mean it's incredibly important that that's well operated and managed and I, and I guess I guess the concern there might be more so about the operators yes. and would there be a concern as their costs rise up disproportionately because they are paying the heating and electric, but we're getting mm. LHA rates and, well, and minimum wage, for example, yeah. not going up as much. So sure. that lower, it's that lower end of the market seems to be disproportionately affected sure. in a way. And are, are you maybe concerned about any of those operators suffering too much? I know you've got a, a range of operators sure. there. I mean, I'm trying to avoid using your language not being rude just what um, I mean is low uh, income yeah yeah, yeah exactly but I mean obviously the people that, 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 that we're addressing are, are very high care needs as I sure. mentioned earlier 43 hours a week mm-hmm. dependent on the state mm-hmm. and it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a cost that the state you know has to meet because the alternative is hospital where the social outcomes are appalling yeah. and the cost is twice as much so when you look at the costs it's obviously I mean the Typically, and these are broad figures, yeah. so typically the rent would be about 10% of the overall care costs, mm, mm, mm. because obviously the care cost is people. And, and, and that must be an even bigger difficulty yeah. for you when we've got, I don't know, um, government employees' wages not going up at nearly yeah. a, a bigger rate. I mean, indexation yeah. is interesting at the moment. Yeah. I mean, the care industry is always, I think, have challenges yeah. with recruitment. We're lucky to work. Well, it's very it. much a vocation, I guess. It's, it's people do, what, do it for the love of it. We're lucky so, to yeah. work with, yeah. you know, the main care provider. I mean, we work with a widespread. We work with big providers. We work with regional providers and we work with local providers because often they have a very good relationship with the mm-hmm. local authority. As you know, care, you know, the image of care improved substantially during sure. the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we had amazing, we had, you know, our buildings are excellent, but the level of COVID is incredibly mm-hmm. low in the, the portfolio. You know, there was no disruption at all in terms of income, but more importantly, vulnerable people were yeah. protected and obviously a large amount of that is down to the quality of the building but most of it is down to the quality of the staff. Yeah. So it is a challenge. Good care providers are interested in you know longevity of employment yeah. so trying to avoid very high turnover, mm-hmm. trying to provide training so yeah. people can have some progression. Mm-hmm. So, it is a, so we work with some of the biggest providers that do that. 
And it's interesting that I can't remember what the the average career length or average time spent in in, in one company or organisation for the private sector is something like for two and a half years for someone under thirty, but wow. in the care yeah. sector it's it's I don't know five times that amount exactly. or something. I mean, uh, I mean, clearly you'd expect some of that. Yeah. I mean, one of the chief execs of one of the care providers said to us and to some of our investors actually at Analyst Day. He said that one of the key reasons he was able to suppress turnover was that if you see the buildings that people are living in as also a place of work, and those are really good quality, mm. then, because obviously people may well move, they may not be exiting care, they may be going to another care provider sure. or another part of the NHS, there is competition between the NHS care providers. So, so all of those things are really important yeah, too. Yeah. And I think it's important to see that whilst it's not easy and it's not a panacea, the, the, the type of people here that are being housed and accommodated do have very particular needs which actually suit certain types of care workers and providers. So you, have, you often have long-term relationships, people that are coming from their local community to serve people in their local community. And I guess that comes back to the regeneration experience yeah. that you've had yeah. there. How do you, what challenges do you find there are in making that community kind of feel with regeneration and not having, I don't know, one type of housing overpower the community? Well, it's, it's a very, very good question. I mean, in my background in, in, um, in large-scale regeneration, the key issue is how do you retain existing communities whilst mm. bringing in... Uh, and new people. A massive challenge. This is not what we're dealing with here. However, what is interesting, actually, if you see some of our videos online or indeed our book, what often you get there's a story about Bethany, who she, you know, for 19 years had lived in her community, and the idea that she would then have to move possibly hundreds of miles mm -hmm. away and accommodation was created within her estate, mm -hmm. basically an estate of property. And that's really absolutely vital. Mm. Now we're lucky because we have access to um, other parts of real estate as well. For example, um, we're finding that some of the um, land and assets that um, CK own mm. are, are, have potential. Yeah, and can be repurposed. Um, yeah. So the classic one is, is, is disused pubs, mm. which are often in the heart of a community, yeah. Uh, and actually lend themselves quite well to, to you know, change of use. And do you um, think there's opportunities then for the high street, for example, totally. for shopping centres to be, yeah. well, I mean, we're already seeing yeah. De the Debenhams near yeah. me is, uh, yeah. is, is being yeah. sort of repurposed. Is that, and Because okay. and these are town centre yeah. areas, and, and yeah. you've already mentioned that some aspects of, of, yeah. of care and, yeah. and supported living do require to be there. So. It does. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't tend to have supported living above shops yeah. for yeah. obvious reasons, but you're right that within a, a whole townscape, mm -hmm. there's definitely opportunities mm -hmm. for that. I think, as an aside, there's clearly opportunities for younger people who don't have care needs to yeah. live in town centres, yeah, and that's going to be a real um, issue for the next 10, 15 years. Actually, at the weekend, I was driving through most of southwest London to try and get to the M3 and I don't know if you're familiar with that area. Yeah, yeah. I, li I live in southeast London yeah. and you've got an almost unbroken series of shops from southeast London right through to the M3 yeah, yeah. which is 
eight, you know, ten miles yeah. of shops. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. extraordinary, isn't it? And so there is obviously well, I guess a lot you of go, opportunities you have. You go through phases, don't you? Mm. In the nineties, it was pubs. Mm. In, in, in the noughties, it mm. was kind of uh, the rise of the estate agent mm. and coffee shops. Yeah, and, yeah. and now, sure. what's going to be the next place that people mm. go on a Saturday rainy afternoon to spend their mm. their time in? And mm. who Mi- knows? Mixed use yeah, is clearly yeah, the way yeah, forward, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So it's like this competitive social. Uh, environments I think mm. are the new one. So in terms of the REIT, what, what are the key metrics that you look for and what metrics or data are you finding that investors want to see now that maybe they weren't interested in five to ten years ago? Um, well obviously every investment has to um, stack up. We are we, you know, we have very high social impact but a fund that you know, makes returns mm-hmm. so they have to meet the uh, yield thresholds. We do find that we're offered most things because we are the largest um, owner of this title of property in the UK and you know I think we've got very good contacts but we do find that sometimes we have to decline or decline for quality um, or, for, or for rents so that's that's the general impact and uh, like, can you remind me of the question so what, what would some of those <laughs> metrics so, so I suppose I mean it is certainly the case that investors were interested in social impact mm. when we started this fund but of course especially the bigger institutions are very keen to understand what we're doing in every aspect governance social and environment we have embarked on a what we think is a set to leading project with eon who are the largest provider yeah. of um, green energy in the uk and we're greening our portfolio combining minimal use of investors funds with maximum use of external grants because mm. E.ON are so large and, and well equipped so they can access those grants locally and nationally. So we've got a decarbonisation programme going on because the portfolio is existing stock. Yeah. You know, we're trying to get everything up, we've nearly got everything up to a C and then mm-hmm. we'll move further than that yeah, yeah. Uh, going forward. In terms of the impact, yeah. how do you measure that? How, do you, how can you evidence the impact that you're giving and then show investors? In, ter- in terms of social impact, so we do a lot of work on this. So from the, from the, from the get-go, really, mm-hmm. when we started, we have two independent consultancies who measure impact. And there's obviously tangible data that you can go and yeah. get around Paul was living in this institution, his care fees were £7,000 a week, he's now living in an institution run by Mencap, and they're £3,500 yeah, a week, yeah. so that's a very clear metric. But what the, so we have six monthly social impact reports, and I would say that they will develop each time. Mm-hmm. So probably actually in five years' time, when you compare the report in five years' time to the first one, you'll see a lot more sure. data going in. What we're tracking is people data. Mm. So, for example, how can you attribute a social value to someone's assessment of how much more they enjoy their, where they live yeah, yeah. and their access to services? Some of that's been slightly held back by COVID, yeah. um, and that's one of the reasons we did the book. Because the book is more subjective. Yeah, yeah. It's it's personal. It's telling stories. It's telling stories. It's personal interaction with a resident, but often with their parents, their care, and getting that real sense of you know where people have come from and how they feel. COVID obviously meant that people sometimes couldn't have the full experience that they wanted to have. They were locked down like us. So so we'll continue to to focus on that. 
and probably go to other stakeholders and counterparties and say, what do you think about this quality of accommodation yeah, yeah. to local authorities? Investors are looking for all of that and more. Mm. You know, they want us to see pushing the envelope in terms of, you know, improvements in terms of how we demonstrate impact. Sure. And I guess one of the other ways you could measure is is the cost on public services. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And that's actually the macro view. Yeah, yeah. So we a few reports of the independent consultants showed that our portfolio saved around sixty five million pounds a year if people were housed in alternative accommodation. Obviously that will apply to other portfolios too, but you know we have measured that and we do know where people have come from and whether where they are now. Brilliant. And I know we touched on this earlier about raising investment for the IPO. What what were some of the biggest challenges in raising investment and what advice would you (coughs) give to uh, property business owners when it comes to raising investment? I think, well, I mean, it's only our personal experience. And I think the communicating what social housing meant, because it's quite a Byzantine structure, (coughs) especially something that is partly regulated, regulated by different bodies, where does the income come from, who manages the rent. If you're, I guess, steeped in all that stuff, then it it feels very familiar, but if you're not, it's hard to explain. Sure, sure, sure. So, you know, what we found was that investors who really got caught with interest with it. You know, we would certainly meet them more than once yeah, yeah. Um, to take them through the strategy. I guess it's, it's like anything, it's building a relationship and knowing, like, and trust where where you're going to put the money in. And I think we had, um, I don't want to sound boastful, but I think we'd done our research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess that's something that everyone can take on board is... is look at what who the people are that you're approaching for investment and what they've typically done before and and, <coughs> and what they might be looking for and yeah. how you can marry those two things up. We had good professional yeah. advisors who helped us with that. But we also had we'd done a lot of research into who we would work, you know, who the counterparties would be, making sure we understood the demand and the numbers because actually there isn't really a body or institution that holds this data. Of course, yeah. Because it's so granular. Yeah. yeah. So you have to go and get it yourself. And yeah. You have to work it out. And we will, and we constantly update that. Yeah. From our own experiences. And I guess it's going to be it's good when you've got a, a hundred million pound fund because you can afford. It's a small percentage to go and do that when you're raising smaller amounts. It's almost harder because you've yes. got to go and, yeah. and I guess do wear all those hats yourself, don't you? So yeah. 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 In, interesting stuff. Is when we when you talk about sort of social housing market, we, you mentioned kind of in Europe and everywhere's improving. How does the UK social housing market compare to other countries? That's a very good question. Um, so the differences are easier to highlight. So as, as I mentioned at the start, what you see in Northern Europe is a lot more institutional capital, certainly in Germany mm-hmm. uh, and France, into residential sure. traditionally. I think that from my experiences before, I think people in Europe feel that the social housing market in Britain is quite well regulated. I'm not saying that it's perfect, but you know there are clear delineation between investments and, and you know measuring standards. Mm. So we used to get a lot of visitors, certainly when I was running housing associations in, in Britain in that respect. What you do find, I mean, in my experience in Germany, they were probably further ahead in terms of decarbonisation. Yeah, well, th- but that's because the uh, housing stock is newer, isn't it? So it's a lot yeah. easier to be. I yeah, mean, yeah. When you're dealing with 150-year-old houses and 
like in, in America where you can uh, there's a lot of land you can build on here mm. I think we're it's 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 hard when you've got very old stock <laughs> and and also our planning laws don't help and as you know traditionally part of the issue as well was around ownership mm. so you know we obviously chose a path of wanting to promote ownership as, as high as possible really yeah um, and that wasn't a path chosen by lots of other European countries. Mm-hmm. They had a much more mixed economy, yeah. which I think partly relates to that more institutional rental market. I think, but I think, do you think maybe we're moving more to a more institutional rental market? It's clearly, we clearly we are. And, yeah. and how do you think then things like, I don't know, the abolishment of Section 21 mm. will affect, I don't know, you're not in housing associations no anymore, <laughs> but when... when there's clearly a bit of a kind of government-led propaganda campaign against some of the PRS, mm. but what most people on the street won't know is housing associations proportionally issue far more mm. no-fault evictions than, than than PRS. So I, I wonder how it will affect um, will affect those. What what are your thoughts on that? Ooh, I don't know. To be honest with yeah, you, Rod. Yeah. I mean, I I I never really thought about it that way. I mean, I think the I mean, we all know that there can be good landlords of, of small, course. big, yeah. medium yeah. sized. And look, you know, 20 years ago, when I was in a big housing association, at that time we thought the only way forward was to manage our stock and to own our own stock. Mm-hmm. I think that's not the case. People understand that that's not yeah. the case now. Why wouldn't you have proper opco proper arrangements? Mm-hmm. You, you know, you get the best of both worlds, arguably, if they're well managed and not over levered. Well, I think um, I think management's never been so important as yeah, it is now. Totally, yeah. totally, and it's all. I mean, and actually, the you know, I guess the a real housing manager in the sense, mm. uh, would say it's all about management, and developer would say it's all about supply, and bringing those two things together and making sure they both work is absolutely um, vital. So, but you know. There clearly are going to be some really good institutional players. Absolutely, um, and and that's where where it's going, and the kind of the the whole mum and pop landlord that <laughs> used to and they a couple move in together and went one house out. Obviously, the tax implications of that are now making that difficult for for people and and, and not as enticing as a, as mm. an investment. So you do get the impression that the government's using the stick rather than the carrot maybe i wonder if there's there's any more carrots to come out to entice more landlords maybe into the social housing sector could be could be mm. interesting what do you what do you think are the biggest risks for your organization at the moment i think i think i mean what is absolute i mean there's there's risks in everything the issue mm-hmm. is are you thinking about them. Well, and what are you doing to mitigate them? And That's probably you, the follow-up And what are you doing to yeah, mitigate yeah. them? Now, I mean, obviously for us, I mean, it would be easy to be complacent about demand because it's very, and as I mentioned earlier, it is possible. I mean, we put an incredible amount of effort into making sure that a building that we acquire and a home that we're developing is what a local authority wants mm. and what the care provider wants and ultimately what the resident wants. Because it's easy to say, well, of course, you know, with this level of demand, surely um, putting anything anywhere of reasonable quality will work. Mm-hmm. And A, I don't think our morals allow us to do that. Course, because yeah. obviously we all want, you know, places that our mum could go. But B, you know, that it is really important to stay on top of that in terms of location. Reputation, so obviously as a public fund, you, you have a lot of public scrutiny, you'll be aware of some of the scrutiny that we've had. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we answer that robustly, calmly, um, patiently, 
and over time and yeah, verify yeah. it properly. Someone famous said, you know, it takes a long time to build a reputation and, and not very long to, to lose it. Now, obviously, you know, one has to every focus on the runway, making sure the quality is high, addressing issues as they arise. Earlier on in this strategy, I mean, this portfolio requires active management. Absolutely, yeah. We don't just sit here yeah. and go, right, thank you very much for the rent. That's not to say that the rent isn't coming in, because it is very successfully, but we help our landlords to do things like decarbonisation. Mm -hmm. Occasionally you'll find buildings every so often need reorientating, they've been in operation for a while, the care provider wants to change them. We need to get in there, understand what needs to happen mm -hmm. and deal with it because professional asset management team to, to do those things. And I, and I guess when kind of there are volatile times, mm. there's a flight to quality, isn't there? And there's a flight and, yeah. to quality. I mean, when we, when we were hit with COVID, like everybody else, yeah. you sit down and think, what needs to happen here? And putting aside, you know, continuing to invest, which we thought was absolutely vital, particularly given no one knew how long the cycle would be in terms of the pandemic. But B, we stayed in very close contact with everyone that we work with, so we had weekly calls with care providers, with housing associations, because we wanted to see what was happening and what the issues were. One of the issues that arose was, as you know, the government said to all councils, everybody in, all homeless people on the streets, because yeah. obviously, I mean, even more vulnerable than they would be normally. Uh, and we housed some people through that programme mm -hmm. in partnership with some London boroughs, because we, we knew we could. Yeah, great, we knew we great. could do it. You're right about the flights of quality, We'd like to think we'd seen that sooner than most, mm -hmm. but actually, you know, as I said earlier, you've got to make sure the building works in the right location mm -hmm. with the right mm -hmm. bespoke um, mm -hmm. services. Yeah, fantastic. That's really interesting, Paul. So thanks very much for for having this discussion. Just want to leave you with one mm. last question. Obviously, you're very successful in what you do. What would you say is the kindest thing someone has done for you in business? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The kindest thing is that an oxymoron. Um, well, I think I think what I think what I have to say, and I think it's a culture that we have here, and it's a culture that I've had everywhere else that, that I've led, and obviously here, you know, people own this business and run it. You know, we are honest with each other mm. about our strengths and our weaknesses. I'm not sure we're supposed to say weaknesses anymore, um, but. You know, there isn't any point in anyone deluding each other about yeah. what needs to happen and what needs to change. We, you know, we're not we're not hyper aggressive here at all, but we are um, very very focused on quality. And if I mess up, I need to know about it. Yeah, and absolutely. so does everybody else. Yeah. You know, so we can put it right. So the kindest thing I think is being honest is not having the emperor's new clothes. Yeah. Much as I might like it, the truth hurts. <laughs> but it's nice to. Uh, and you know the nice thing is that's not just focused on me everybody has the same the other thing i would say from the past was those mentors you know we all had when i was younger people who spotted me and thought that i could lead that that's really giving kind. you an opportunity that's yeah. really kind yeah. as yeah. well yeah. you know people that yeah. are in encouragement is everything for yeah. me so. fantastic and if we've got listeners who are maybe developing out buildings and considering a social housing strategy what would be the best way for them to contact your team if they're looking to maybe offload those or, or do something along those lines? I, th I think initially just an email to me would be fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, we can put that in the yes, show notes. Yeah, sure. And, um, and then I'll be happy to, yeah. to talk to them. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much thanks again, Paul. It's been, it's been great.